Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter three. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Now, Luke's take on it is different than Matthew's. Luke says he will be great, he will be the son of the Most High, and he will have the throne of his father, David. And then he just has him in the middle, just mixed in, the son of David, above him, the son of Nathan. Interesting. And throughout Luke's gospel, we see people yelling again, Jesus, son of David. So only Luke and only Matthew of the four gospels provide genealogies. Both genealogies are very theologically different because that author is inspired by God, but he also has a mind, and he's going to present his genealogy, what matches with his theology that he's been given by the Holy Spirit. So they're different. The genealogies are theological ideologies, okay? So let's take Matthew first. Matthew is Jewish, and he is speaking to what? A Jewish audience. So he really is concerned the genealogy, the beginnings of Jesus Christ, the genetical history of Jesus Christ. First thing, son of David. Second thing, son of Abraham, even though that's not quite the order, but he wants us to know they've been waiting for a king, waiting for a king. Messiah has to be a king. Messiah has to be from the Davidic line. So he is going to show Jesus to be son of David and son of Abraham. Why Abraham? He's the father of their faith. And remember, Matthew has 14 14, 14, 14 is really important to Matthew. He'll have a group of 14. And this is, you know, 2,000 years of genealogy. He has 14, and the very last line, David became the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Her name's Bathsheba. But shh, don't tell anyone. (laughs) You know, that was the sin when he saw her bathing on the rooftop. Then he has another 14. And at the end of that 14, it starts with Solomon, and it ends with Josiah becoming the father of Yochaniah and his brothers at the time of the Babylonian exile. Then he has another 14, and it's from the Babylonian exile of the one born Jesus who is called Messiah. So it's just screaming 14. And then at the end, he says the total number of generations from Abraham to David is 14. From David to the Babylonian exile, 14. From the Babylonian exile to the Messiah, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14. What is this in Hebrew geometria? Hebrew numerology. Numbers always have a meaning, always have a reason. 14. Every letter in the Hebrew is assigned a number equivalent. So if you spell out David in Hebrew, if you add them up, 14. So what Matthew is doing is screaming to us in secret code. He's screaming to us, David, 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 like a flashing light. David, 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 14, 14, 14. Why three 14s? If we add 14 plus 14 plus 14, what do we get? 42. There's 42 generations listed in Matthew's genealogy. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Why 42? Well, if we go back to Egypt, when Pharaoh finally let Moses and his people go after the death of his firstborn son, he said, get out, go. The 10th plague, go, leave, go. They left in stages because you have 2.5 million people and women and children. And they go in, remember how they would march in their encampments? 
Remember this? So they're leaving Egypt. And if you go to Numbers 33, there will be a census account of all the encampments, all the stages on the journey. And if you count them up, every single one of them, and I did, how many encampments were there? 42. So what is Matthew saying? 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus and 42 encampments from Moses to get into the promised land. So he's saying Jesus is the new David and Jesus is the new Moses. And out of Egypt, I have called my son because he called Moses out of Egypt. And he also will call Jesus out of Egypt when they have to escape to Egypt. And then that will fulfill Hosea 11 out of Egypt. I have called my son. So Jesus is a new Moses and Matthew wants us to know that. So this is part of his theology, David, 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 and Moses, Moses, Moses. And both of them tell us that Jesus is from tribe Judah. And that is the royal line of David. And even after the exile, they come back as an intact tribe, Judah. And Judah, Jesus is described as a member of the lineage of Judah. And in Revelation, we hear both. Then one of the elders said to me, weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of Jesse has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. So it always was believed by the Jews that Messiah, Messiah, the Jewish Messiah will come from the Davidic royal line. It's the Lord's promise that he would have an everlasting throne and it would be one of David's own offspring from his own loin. It's in 2 Samuel 7. He tells it to David and that's the exact message Gabriel gave to Mary. Also, we studied Isaiah last year and he predicts it too, that upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, this time forth and forevermore. Messiah is going to come from the line of David. Jeremiah knew it also. I'm going to cause a righteous branch to spring forth for David. In those days, Judah is going to be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. It's a forever kingdom. And in the Psalms, I will not lie down to David. His line shall endure forever, his throne, as long as the sun is before me. So David, David, David. Now, the other Luke, Luke, Luke has a little different story because Matthew is writing a Jew, writing for a Jewish audience. Remember Luke? He is from Syria, Antioch. He's a Gentile. He's Greek. He's a Hellenistic Jew at the best, a convert. He's writing to a more universal audience. And so he will have David in there mentioned. He'll have Abraham. You'll, you'll recognize a lot of the names, but then he's going to have Shem and Noah and Lamech and Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible. That's always on Jeopardy. And the son, the son of Enoch, and Enoch went up and was taken. And he has Seth and Adam and the son of God. So he goes all the way back to Adam, not just to Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. He's going to go all the way back to the father of humanity and Adam, the first man of the first creation. So it's more a universal approach. He goes way back to Seth because Cain killed Abel and Cain is banished east of the land of Eden. Abel's dead. And when they have Seth, Seth turns back to the Lord. And so this is the Messiah's line from Seth. And then Adam, all the way back. Matthew only goes as far back as Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. But Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And then Luke's going to take us right into the temptation of Jesus, the new Adam, next week. The old Adam didn't resist the temptation. What's the new Adam going to do? You'll have to come back next week. But it's Jesus, right? All along in their mind's eye, in God's mind's eye before the beginning of the world, Jesus was always going to be the new Adam. Oh, happy fault of Adam, the one for us, so great a savior. Okay, now, the other cool thing about Luke's genealogy is it has 77 generations. How many did Matthews have? 
42. Luke has 77. Well, isn't this the same guy? I mean, isn't this the same genealogy? Why is this? So if you list Luke's out, Jesus, Yeshua, is number 77. Now, numbers are important. Luke has 77, and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is number 77. What would that mean? Seven sevens? Seven's a good number, right? Seven sevens, perfection, perfection. In biblical numerology, 77s is the fullest extension of seven that we see in the Bible. 77s. And we've already had it once in Luke, if you recall. 77s, 70 times seven or 490 years. What was that? That was when Gabriel came to Zechariah in the temple and said, I am Gabriel. And when was the last time we had ever heard from Gabriel? In Daniel 9. When he said, 70 of sevens. And it's from Leviticus 26. If you don't obey me, then I'm going to punish you seven times more. He had already punished them 70 years in exile, but they hadn't changed their hearts. So seven times more than 70, 490 years until Messiah comes. So that's the last time they'd seen Gabriel. It's going to be another 490 years. Fast forward up. The 490 years are up. And what was that for? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's going to happen now. And that's why Luke has 77 for Jesus. We were told in the Old Testament in Genesis that Cain is avenged sevenfold. Truly, Lamech, 77 fold. It's the greatest mercy. Jesus says, I don't say to you to forgive seven times, but 70 times seven times. The fullest of forgiveness, the most complete, the perfection of forgiveness. In Luke's gospel, he says, if someone sins against you seven times, In a day, and he turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. And only Luke has this, that on the cross, the last words Jesus said is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is a perfection of forgiveness for all humanity, from all the way back to Adam and all the way forward to us and everyone after us. It's a universal forgiveness. It's a savior that we all need for the forgiveness of sin. So he's perfection at number 77 in Luke's, a perfection of forgiveness and mercy, the face of the father's mercy, Yeshua, number 77 on Luke's genealogy. I didn't make this up because St. Augustine, who's one of the chair carriers, right? The father from the West who holds up the chair at St. Peter's. Augustine says this, in the number used by Luke, we find included both Christ himself Himself, with whom the enumeration begins and God with whom it is closed and the sum becomes 77 which denoted the thorough remission and abolition of all sins the perfect removal of sins the Lord himself also clearly represented under the mystery of this number when he said that the person sinning ought to be forgiven not only seven times but unto even unto 70 times seven times So the early fathers recognized the difference between these genealogies and the theology that each author inspired by the Holy Spirit was trying to show us. So Luke tells us Jesus was about 30. That's the age when priests would, would enter into their ministry. He's not from Levi, but he will be the final high priest. He's priest, prophet, and king. And Luke tells us that Joseph, I love this. Uh, Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. I love how he adds, as was supposed, because he's keeping that mystery of the messianic secret 
alive. It's Mary. Mary is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, is the true father, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And Matthew has a different father for Joseph. Uh Uh-oh. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. So one has Heli, being the the father of Joseph, and the other one has Jacob. Now that is what got me up at 3 a.m. this morning, and I'm not kidding, and I was searching over the genealogies. How could Joseph have different fathers, Jacob and Heli? And I found an answer where Matthew is going to take the genealogy all the way from David. He'll take it down through Solomon's line, King Solomon. Luke is going to take a different son, Nathan of David and take it all the way down. There's a a whole discussion of church fathers on that, and I couldn't, I I can't get into it now. But in the time of Roman rule, all holders of the office of Nase prince after Shemahiah claimed Davidic lineage through Hillel, who was rumored to have maternal lineage from the Davidic line. Rome is taking over the empire. There's one king, Caesar, in Rome. All these little kingdoms that it's taking over and gobbling up have their own kings. So if you had a kingly line, you had to report to Rome your lineage of your kingdom through the maternal side. So there could be a difference that Luke is reporting it a different way. Jesus began when he was 30. One name you'll recognize, all those names, I don't know, Zerubbabel. Does that ring a bubble? Anyone? Or ring a bell? I mean, (laughs) for anybody? He was the one, after Nehemiah and Ezra, he came back to help rebuild the temple. Jesus began his ministry at about 30. How old was David? 30. When he began his reign, how long was David's reign? 40 years. But I love this. At Hebron, David reigned over Judah seven years and six months. At Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of peace, Salem, way back to Melchizedek, Genesis 14. When David ruled at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for how long? 33 years he was king over Jerusalem. How long was Jesus king? The newborn king of the Jews. Zero, till he's crucified on the cross with his kingly crown and Pilate hammers up there, Jesus, king of the Jews. He's got a 33-year reign also. When did David die? It's recorded in 970 B.C., How long between David and Jesus? Jesus was probably born about 3 to 5 BC, and he lived to be 33, 1,000 years. There's one millennium between the two kings, King David and King Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, but he's from the Davidic line, as all the prophets knew. When they went to be enrolled in his own city, Joseph went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Uh Uh-uh! Never, never is the city of David called Bethlehem. The city of David is Jerusalem over 45 times in the Old Testament. What's going on? Over 40 times, at least 45, it's always David's city in battle years is always Jerusalem. They go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where the temple is. But in the New Testament, and only this one time, and Luke is very intentional about this because he wants to catch your attention and say, what's going on? The city of David's not Bethlehem, it's Jerusalem. No. It is, it is, for 3,000 years, this has been the city of David, Jerusalem. But where was King David born? Bethlehem. It's a little podunk city, six miles outside of Jerusalem where all the shepherds live because David was a shepherd. And what do they need sheep for? Temple sacrifice. It's the most lowly of the jobs. 
The census is always, and, and the tribes, when they're counted, they're always counted by the father. This is in Numbers 1, when they're taking any census for the children of Israel after their families, the house of their fathers, every male. They declared their pedigrees after their families by the house of their fathers. So it's always father's male, father's male, father's male. So we don't know Mary's lineage because we see men mostly. Matthew has some women, and that's a whole other topic. But... Mary goes to be enrolled with Joseph, who is betrothed with child. So she is really, really pregnant, and they're coming way from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem, the city of David. Why? God knows that this prophecy needs to be fulfilled in Micah too. That old little town of Bethlehem, this little dinky town of Bethlehem, through you among, though you're little among all the thousands of Judah, that out of you is going to come the one who will rule with the iron rod. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. He has to be born from the house of David, which is the birthplace of David, which is Bethlehem technically. Mary's a first century Galilean Jewish woman, virgin mother of Jesus, both in the New Testament and in the Quran. Joseph is from the tribe of Judah, house of David. We know that from scripture. We know salvation came from the Jews. Jesus told us that himself. And Mary says he has come to help his servant Israel. She's a Jewish girl, but the Bible doesn't tell us her lineage. But the church fathers do. That Jesus must have descended from David by blood through his mother, Mary. Ignatius of Antioch wrote that Mary is of Davidic ancestry. Justin Martyr wrote that Mary was of Davidic ancestry. Gregory Naziazen, he said that Mary could have been from the Levite tribe because Elizabeth, her kinswoman, was from the house of Aaron, and maybe the priestly line came from Mary and the kingly line came from Joseph. He's just speculating. We call that speculative theology. But he's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the Most High. He's going to have the throne of his father, David. Zachariah said in his Benedictus that he's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. And so Mary travels far, whether she just wants to be with Joseph at this time. They, they have this secret that they both know, and, and, and no one else is going to believe it, or she'll be stoned. So, so they go together, whether she needed to register or just he did. But she travels over 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They could have gone straight, and it would have been 90 miles, but they would have had to go right through Samaria. And so most Jews from Nazareth skirted around Samaria because it was violent, and they went through the Jordan River Valley, which would have tacked on more time. But she goes with him, pregnant, 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 and to be counted in the census at Bethlehem, the city of David. So the Messiah from the house of David would come from the city of David. The Romans had made a census. They said a census. There must be a census. Is that because Caesar Augustus called for a census? Because he loved the people so much. Why would he call a census? Money! He wants building projects and taxes, and he has to know how many people and how much money he can count on and how much can be extorted from them. So he had publicans placed around the Roman Empire, and they are tax collectors, and they would be there to get the money. And Luke is the only one that has uh, a few stories about different publicans, tax collectors, like the Pharisee and the publican, where the Pharisee is the proud, arrogant one, and the publican is actually the lowly one who's repenting and beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner a tax collector. Also, you'll remember Zacchaeus. Only Luke has this story. He's up in a tree. We'll study him later, but he's a publican, a tax collector, chief tax collector. And Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. And he gets him down out of the tree. He has a major conversion and he wants to return any money he's taken from people fourfold over. Another tax collector we just studied this week. We had his feast day. Jesus passed by a man called Matthew. 
a publican, a tax collector. Matthew was sitting at the tax office. He was a publican. And Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Say, last thing here is the character of John the Baptist in this chapter. The word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into the region about the Jordan, baptizing and preaching the repentance for forgiveness of sin. Now, Luke will give us a straight up fulfillment from Isaiah. Luke says it's written by Isaiah that there's going to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. This is him. Make straight the path of the Lord. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one out in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. Make straight the paths. And the tax collectors are having metanoia. They're coming to him. They want to be baptized. Teacher, what shall we do? And he says, collect no more than is appointed you. The soldiers say, what shall we do? Rob no one else. Don't do any violence, false accusations. Be content with your wages. Crowds and crowds and crowds of people are coming out to the middle of nowhere. In the middle, he's getting quite a big following. Finally, the Pharisees go out there to see what in the heck is going on out in the desert. And he therefore said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befit repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. That would be like us saying, oh, we're Catholic. We're good. God is able to raise up from these stones, Catholics. We got to do something. We got it. We can't just claim the covenant. We got to live the covenant and do the covenant and bear fruit, good fruit, fruit that'll last, eternal fruit. Even now, says John, the axe is laid to the root of trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and what? Thrown into the fire of Gehenna for burning As the people were in expectation and all men questioned their hearts concerning John, whether perhaps maybe he was the Christ. Is he the anointed one? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Listen to him preach. Oh my gosh, he can really exhort the people. And John said, I baptize you with water, but the one who is mightier than I is coming and the thong of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, which he will on Pentecost. He knows He's in John's gospel. He was the best man, not the bridegroom. He won't untie the strap in the love, right? 25 in in that law about taking the widow. That's another time. They go to Paul. Paul and Luke are traveling together in Acts. They go to Ephesus and they notice as they're coming through Ephesus, they found some disciples and they said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've never heard anything about a Holy Spirit. What's that about? And they said, well, into what were you baptized? Said Paul. And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, oh, John baptized a baptism of repentance, but you got to be baptized into the Trinity, into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian baptism in the name of Jesus. So Paul rebaptized them and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And so the baptism of John was different from the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is going to baptize people with Holy Spirit and fire into the Trinity. That's what we lost. What did we get banished from? The Trinity in the garden. They were all there and the door was shut. We got to get back to the Trinity and baptism is the start of that because you're baptized into the Trinity, into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they were all there that day. In the Jordan River, Jesus, in bodily form, the Son of God, is in the water, the river of life, and the Holy Spirit comes down in bodily form. Luke is the only one that says in bodily form. The Holy Spirit was in a dove. You could see it. And the heavens opened, and the audio voice of God the Father was heard. They didn't see God face to face. 
because the gateway's not opened back yet, but they heard God. So the Trinity's coming back. The Trinity's coming back by baptism. And it's a theophany in the Bible. And they're all three there. He's the new tree of life. The spirit is the river of life. God, the father, his voice is right there. The voice of the father saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He's in bodily form. The Holy Spirit's in bodily form. The, that's called the theophany. When the whole Trinity lines up like that in the Bible, it hardly ever happens. It happens here tonight. It's a theophany. God, the father, God, the Holy Spirit, God, the son. The Trinity is back. The Trinity is back just like it was in the garden. This is the beginning. This is the gateway. Jesus is the way back to the Father. He has to do all the work first. All the people were baptized. Jesus also had been baptized and he was praying and the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form as a dove. The voice came from heaven, thou art my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And John knows now when John audibly heard that voice right there by Jesus, he knew my job's done. I must decrease and he must increase. He came to prepare the way. He came to be the voice in the desert and that voice is going to be by Herod. And that's okay. He's done his job. He's glorified the father by the job he was supposed to do. The forerunner to the apostle. He was sent to prepare the way. He did his job well. It was his life's purpose that he could glorify God the father. That's what he was made for, to be the mouthpiece, to announce the way. Ah, I love John. This is how he could best glorify the Father to do the job the Father asked him to do. It's the same with every single one of us. The way we can best glorify God is do the job God called you to do. You must know your spiritual fruit. You must know the gift of the Holy Spirit, the fruit in your life. Peace, love, joy, patience. Those are all fruits of the Spirit. They're eternal fruits. They live in you. We glorify God when we use them and give them back for his kingdom's glory. Last thing, Jesus in John, the climax of John's gospel, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour for for this purpose that I have come for this hour. Father, why? To glorify your name. Jesus is going to do his job, do it perfectly with perfect obedience, and that's going to glorify the Father. And a voice came from heaven then too. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was standing there heard it and they said it sounded like thunder. Others said it's an angel that's spoken to him. And Jesus said, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who's that? Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. He will be cast out. And when I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's still being lifted from the earth and drawing all people to himself in his true presence in the Eucharist, the bread of the presence. And it glorifies the Father. And every time we're at Mass, this is the climax of the climax of the Mass. And the Father continues to be glorified through him, with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. All glory and honor are yours, Almighty Father. We're there to glorify the Father through the Son, by the power of the Spirit. And we too should glorify God with our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for this powerful message tonight. We thank you for John, the voice that cried out in the desert, prepare ye the way of the Lord that wanted us to repent and have forgiveness, to open our hearts up to you so we'd have fertile heart soil when the word strikes our heart. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Luke. Thank you for Matthew. Thank you for the way the Holy Spirit inspired them to write. And Jesus, thank you that 
you went under baptism to show us that we could see the Trinity again. There's a glimpse of the Trinity again. There's a way to get back to the heart of the Trinity again when we die. You're going to open the gate, and this is just the foretaste. So we praise and thank you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and never shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord. You just heard part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter three, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.